For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Robot soft exorcism is inviting someone to be a human being rather than just being their position. I have my opinion, and then I have my posture, and then I have my position. I don't have to confuse my opinion or my posture or my position for my identity. All around us, people are choosing nonviolence in their differences. Karl Barth once said that if you don't have any solid difference with the person with whom you exchange the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ isn't there. Because if the peace has to overcome some kind of difference. So I would say that a small exorcism occurs whenever we repent, whenever we apologize, whenever we back down. And then every so often, something gets hold of people. They confuse their position for their core self, and violence ensues. So exorcism is an exotic word, but part of my robot soft exorcism idea is that we manage to not lose it with each other all the time. We overcome our own road rage all the time. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. According to David Dark, each of us occupy a variety of robots. Roles, titles, occupations, institutions, conglomerates, ways of being, social norms, etc. And these robots exert a cultural force, sometimes benign, but then again, sometimes violently destructive and degrading of human life. And in order to appreciate and honor our shared humanity, those of us in violent, impersonal robot systems need to be softly, humanely, respectfully, lovingly exercised from those violent systems. David Dark is an American writer and cultural critic and is assistant professor of religion and the arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's author of several books, including Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons, and Other Pop Culture Icons, and The Gospel According to America, a meditation on a God-blessed, Christ-haunted idea. Today on the show, I ask David about an idea of his called Robot Soft Exorcism. It's a metaphor slash parable slash theory slash way of life that he uses to explain and expound nonviolent resistance and prophetic witness. Along the way, we talk about the righteous skepticism he was raised on, the blurry secular sacred divide, how he met Henry Nouwen, the technological ethics of French philosopher Jacques Ellul, the real meaning of turning the other cheek, and the constant need to divest ourselves of the power of our positions, our titles, our platforms, our robots. To give you a bit of context, let's start with David reading directly from the original thread that introduced the idea. Then we'll get into some personal then we'll get into some personal biography, some of his concerns. And as the interview goes on, you'll hear him break down each component of robot soft exorcism. Thanks for listening. Okay. If my desire to maintain a certain overhead over the years left me at the control panel of a giant robot, which I discovered was working with other robots to deport people, traumatize children, crush dissent, 
and destroy the possibility of human thriving for most people. I'd welcome someone, anyone, who spied a living person staring down from the window that is the robot's eyeball socket and tried to reach me and offer a strategy for exiting the robot before I died inside it or offered instructions for stopping the robots without hurting the people inside them. The robots are what the Apostle Paul referred to as principalities and powers. We call them brands, platforms, parties, offices, and follower sets. We are right to wrestle against them, the robots, while remembering that we're to avoid wrestling against flesh and blood, the human beings looking down at us through the window slash eye sockets of the robots. David Dark, thanks so much for joining me on For the Life of the World. I'm very grateful to be with you. You write and speak just about so many things, really, and so many things that I personally care about. But I wanted you to say a little bit about your concerns and what you care about. And if you might tell that historically, that would be interesting. How do you articulate those cares? Yes, I am of Nashville. I'm 51. And I come from a family of, I want to say philosophers. We didn't really put it that way. But I'll say philosopher because I think philosophers are people who want to know what's true, want to avoid Mm -hmm. lying if they can. And I had that within my family. My family, members of my family could be thought of as religious fundamentalists. But why name call? (laughs) Why why put it that way? So a crazy (laughs) little origin story is that I once drew a picture of Godzilla I wrote the word Godzilla on it when I was maybe five years old. And I handed it to my grandmother and she handed it back to me and said, there's only one God, which was not a fun thing to be told by my grandmother. Right. But my father and my mother, because they were philosophers, taught us a kind of righteous skepticism. So I loved my grandmother in my way. But even as a child, if I shared that experience with my mom and dad, they would not have deferred to my grandmother. Within this origin story, there is a kind of overcoming of deferential fear or overcoming of misplaced deference. Uh, That even though I grew up with some rather toxic conceptions of God, myself, and other people, There was a river of righteous skepticism running through it. I was taught at an early age that I could have Godzilla and the Bible because of something of a oppositional energy that I was taught to feel in conversations like that. Or rather, I don't have to settle for the given dichotomies or dualisms. That's beautiful. I, I want to ask you about righteous skepticism. Okay. Like, say a little more about like what you think that means. But the, I got to say the first thing that came to mind for me in righteous skepticism is kind of the ancient Taoist tradition, which implements skepticism, not for the sake of just tearing down knowledge, but for the sake of knowledge in the end that you, you care so deeply for knowledge, but you realize just how limited the mind is 
to be able to reach it. And so what I hear, and, and that is a little bit of Taoism and maybe a little bit of just like intellectual humility. Absolutely. I would not have heard the word Taoism probably until I was 21 or 22. Sure. But I would say that because my family was full of people who were serious about being students of Jesus, hmm. that what might be dismissed as a fundamentalist neuroses overlying, or hmm. in Jesus's teaching, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, we hmm. were taught to not say shut up, to not call <laughs> anyone a fool, to not promise, to not pledge vow, or swear. So it might be a stretch for some listeners, but maybe not, to think of Jesus as a proponent of a form of Taoism. But that was kind of there before I knew what Taoism was. So I grew up with a serious fear of hell, a serious fear yeah. of people who weren't baptized going to hell. Mm -hmm. But there was also a lot of wisdom going on too. So the, the popular division between religion and politics or religion and pop culture was something that no one in my house accepted. Yeah. So I could say that I found that on my own. Yeah. No, not really. If I wanted to watch Fantasy Island or Three's Company or The Twilight Zone <laughs> or buy a comic yeah. book that you had to be 18 to buy, it was a conversation with my parents. Right. It wasn't, you can't buy it. It was, well, why do you want it? What is it about this comic book? Yeah. And so when a day came that I wanted to see a rated R film, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, hmm. I asked my mom's permission. And she said no. And yeah. I saw it anyway. And then I told her, <laughs> I apologized. But it wasn't really an apology because it was, I'm sorry that you're upset that I saw Brazil, but I needed to see Brazil. So tell me a little bit about the intellectual and spiritual influences that make that possible, right? That make the binaries of, of Christianity and pop culture blurry, that, that, help to, that help to appreciate Godzilla and God. Yeah. So as I said, I come from Nashville, which in many ways is the postmodern Vatican of the prayer trade. <laughs> You've got to unpack that a minute. <laughs> yeah. So Nashville is religious broadcasting in a lot of ways. Not that all broadcasting yeah. isn't religious huh. in its way. Sure. Well, fair enough. But growing up in Nashville, I went to a segregationist academy. It was not advertised mm. that way, but it was wow. one of many private schools that uh -huh. whose own founding had something to do with resisting public school integration. And it was lovely, let me say. I feel like I need to call it a segregationist academy. But of course, it wasn't just a segregationist academy. Any more than a white supremacist terror operative is just a white supremacist terror operative. Had a great time mm -hmm. there. And Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and early marketed as Christian musicians figures would come. Yeah. This is the 80s. Yeah. Every year they would come. And I was listening to you too at the same time. Yeah. So here's Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, who are wonderful people, who are being marketed as Christian. And here's U2's war album. And yeah. that that was part of my media diet. 
And to be told that Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant were Christian and that U2 is secular, hmm. no way. <laughs> like, I, I just knew that wasn't true. <laughs> so I was taught at 16 or 17 to not trust hmm. the secular sacred divide by the fact yeah. of my own experience. So it was blurry. Hmm. And, and again, I'm in Nashville. So Nashville is sort of the flashpoint of, yeah. I said, the prayer trade, but also, if you like, a kind of grift, a kind of uh, cartel yeah. of who believes what about God, who believes what about abortion, who believes what about pot. It's all, it's a tangle, and it's not unrelated yeah. to where we are now. Is that a little microcosm for America then? Absolutely. You, you really, one might want to se separate Christian marketing from the January 6th attack, but you well, really can't because no, association so. is currency. People legitimate one yes. another in big and small ways. And it is one, one human barnyard is one of my big lines because I don't ultimately mm. think that there are unrelated phenomena. And our job is to go granular in our consideration yeah. of culture and the, hmm. the attempt to divide it up between the religious and the, the political. So, but to go back to the blurry thing, my, my mom and dad, we went to church every week, sometimes two mm -hmm. or three times, and they always voted Democrat. So I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter was thought of as an evangelical Christian. Right, yeah. And I would have an 80-year-old mother who's always voted Democrat and wow. who identifies as evangelical mm -hmm. because evangelical refers to really taking Jesus seriously for my mom. Yeah. Right. And yet my mom— who, I think it still does in many ways. That's but right. It's that term by many. That's right. But fewer, perhaps, right? And it's becoming more of a political currency. Yeah, my mom maintains all of her faculties, and we talk about these things. She mm -hmm. can recognize at 80 that the marketing thing that was called evangelical yeah. is now probably better called white evangelical because uh, often, to an extent, marketing-wise, yeah. what was mm -hmm. it, 81% voted for Donald Trump of mm -hmm. self-identified evangelicals, white evangelicals. But if by evangelical we mean the gospel of Jesus and taking it personally, I'm sure evangelical, or I want to be. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your theological influences and how that maybe crashes into culture for you. Yes. So I'm in Nashville as a child. I go to undergrad at MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, from 88 mm -hmm. to 92. And I listen to Rush Limbaugh every day. So Rush wow. Limbaugh, not usually thought of as a theologian, but to a degree, no. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh formed my theology for a time. Mm. But I was yeah. also listening to Public Enemy. I'd also seen Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And I had U2 wow. in my pocket. So I had a sure. lot of stuff going on. And then I go, this will be enjoyable for your listeners, <laughs> when I graduate and work for the YMCA in Northern Ireland, I go to a thing called the Greenbelt Festival, where I meet mm. Henry Nowen. Oh, my goodness. In 92, I listened to wow. Henry Nowen talk about Nicaragua, talk about 
Romero. Yeah. And I hear him use the word social justice. My inner Rush Limbaugh doesn't like that. Right. So I talked to Henry now and afterwards. I'm letting, I don't say that I was triggered by what he said, but I'm trying <laughs> to take Henry Nowen on. And I said, wow. well, here's what you got to understand, Henry Nowen. Our understanding of justice doesn't match up with God's understanding of justice. Wow. This is 92. Henry Nowen responds by saying, what's your name again? <laughs> and he starts asking me about where I come from, how I got to the Greenbelt Festival. I'm from Nashville. Oh, Nashville, blah, blah, blah. And I start, my defenses drop because this man who I secretly admire is asking me questions. But here's the kicker. At the end, he can tell that I'm satisfied by our interaction, basically that I believe that he's a Christian and that I'm willing to think of him as a friend. And then just before he walks away, he says, oh, you're right about justice. And he just keeps on walking. So he magnified me. Huh. He loved me, really. I don't think he remembered my name five minutes later. But there was a kind of holiness there in my view because mm. he knew that ultimately I just wanted to count. I felt discounted by the way he was talking about God. And my ego felt bruised. But then he kind of gave me my ego back. And so that's 92. That's almost 30 years ago. And now I understand that what would non-social justice be? There is no non-social justice. <laughs> justice is relational through and through. And mm. so just in a tiny little microcosm, Henry Nowen turned my head around. I was already into Thomas Merton. I was into all kinds of interesting yeah. people. But yeah. you meet people like that, you read people like that, and it becomes harder and harder to hand your emotions over to somebody like Rush Limbaugh. I needed more people in my head than Rush Limbaugh. And yeah, so there's one, but there's many more. But Henry Nowen got through to me when it mattered. When I invited you to come on the show, it was focusing on a specific idea that you, I think you workshopped it over Twitter. I did. And this was about three years ago. And it's more than just a, well, an idea or a Twitter workshop thread. It's like a metaphor slash parable in a way yeah. to me. And it's robot soft exorcism. So how do you these days like to introduce that idea? What is robot? soft exorcism. So this yeah. was around the time that there was a, quite a clamp down in terms of children being taken away from their parents at the border. Yeah. Really restrictive executive orders happening in terms of LGBTQ people serving in the military. There were just a bunch of mm. things happening. Walter Wink is not a household name at all. But borrowing from William Stringfellow, right, Walter right, right. Wink offered a way of reading, a way of conceiving political power, institutions, a mm -hmm. uh, three-volume series called the Powers Series, in which he explicates the Ephesians passage, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the present age or the present darkness mm -hmm however one mm. reads this. And so my interest in the principalities and powers 
as a way of naming systemic evil started with Walter Wink. So robot soft exorcism began with the Red Hen (laughs) restaurant in Virginia. Yeah. So when Sarah Huckabee Sanders, press secretary, shows up at the restaurant, there are staff, servers, and folks in the kitchen who, whether for LGBTQ issues or immigration issues, do not feel safe, do not feel Mm. honored by her presence. So the Mm. owner of the Red Hen approaches Sarah Huckabee Sanders and says, the the appetizers are on us, but my staff are not comfortable, and I'm going to ask you and your party to leave. To which, Mm. according to the story, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, I understand. She's a public Mm. servant. She has a role as the press secretary of the White House, then the Trump administration. But she Mm. seemed to understand that a boundary was being drawn and that she needed to honor that boundary. She didn't seem to take it personally initially. Mm. But from there, she left the restaurant, went on Twitter, named the restaurant, and that made life complicated for the Red Hen restaurant. And so I was trying to find a way of describing those boundaries and a way of describing that interaction that honored everyone. Power differential is a thing that we're naming here. So out of that gave me a way of naming nonviolent resistance. That's that's this important instance. But the reason your retelling of that narrative through the metaphor is so gripping is because of the way that it picks up and helps explain so much of the history of human justice and injustice, make it present. Yeah, so I would say that Jesus is teaching, and I learned this from Walter Wink, actually. Turn the other cheek is not um, asked to be hit again. Turn the other cheek is in ancient, in Roman society, in the ancient world of first century Palestine, a Roman soldier might regularly backhand someone like Jesus. And when you are backhanded, you are struck as an underling. Um, To be struck by an underling, I guess we could say struck by a cop or by law enforcement. Jesus counseled his audience in the Sermon on the Mount that when you are backhanded, you don't hit back. You also don't run away. You offer your other cheek. And when you offer the other cheek, you are standing before your oppressor or your bully as an equal. And um, this time, if they're going to strike you again, they aren't going to backhand you. They are going to punch you as an equal. Wow. Visualizing what it means to turn the other cheek, having been struck that way, right? Having to turn away and to, to come back up and then offer the other. I mean, there is a form of taking power back. That's right. In a peaceful way. You are dramatizing Um, the conflict. And I think that is the task of prophetic action. You take the contradiction, the unequal relationship, and you dramatize it. It doesn't mean Hmm. you don't get hit again. But for anybody nearby, you're making it clear what's going on. Similarly, Walter Wink tells us that a Roman soldier could compel a Jewish person, to carry their bags for one mile. That was the limit of the law. 
Jesus instructs Jewish people to offer to carry the luggage a second mile, thereby Mm. asserting your own personhood in an arrangement that legally is an arrangement between non-equals. So robot soft exorcism is inviting someone to be a human being rather than just being their position, whether it's as a deputy, a sheriff, Pontius Pilate, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, whoever it might be. There are Mm. all kinds of ways of, well, this is a quote from Daniel Berrigan. He says, stand where you must stand, be human there. So if I ask an elected official to Mm. rethink their vote, right? Yeah, yeah. And if I follow that elected official into an elevator to talk to them about it, Mm -hmm. somebody can say I'm being unreasonable, but I can say to that somebody, I think you've forgotten who that elected official works for. It's me. You can call it harassment, but I own the Capitol. I own the White House. I own the Tennessee State Legislature. And let me just say, I learned that from Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh taught me that federal property is my property. I own the electric chair at River Bend Penitentiary in um, Tennessee. Wow, yeah. Mm. So when I show up to say that I don't want anyone executed anymore, I'm putting my body in the way of things. And that is uh, when a president or a governor or a CEO says, well, you know, this is just business or this is what I have to do. I bring my own personness to it. And that names the tactic that is robot soft exorcism. You know, I was about when you were saying that you own the Capitol building, you own the White House. I was about to say, well, we own it. That's right. However, but when you also went to the extent of, you know, I own the electric chair, that does make it important to individualize the sense of ownership and so ownership in the sense of responsibility and, and a willingness to see ourselves as, I love this and I want to really pull this out to see ourselves as human and not just our position. That's right. And so I want to talk, I want to now break it down. Like you've explained robot soft exorcism, it's context in nonviolent resistance and communication, but I want to break it down a little bit, robot soft and exorcism. Yes. So let's start with robot where I want to begin is one. I want to read the beginning of your Twitter thread. Okay. If my desire to maintain a certain overhead over the years left me at the control panel of a giant robot, which I discovered was working with other robots to deport people, traumatize children, crush dissent, and destroy the possibility of human thriving for most people, I'd welcome someone, anyone, who spied a living person staring down from the window that is the robot's eyeball socket and tried to reach me and offer a strategy for exiting the robot before I died inside it or offered instructions for stopping the robots without hurting the people inside them. The robots are what the Apostle Paul referred to as principalities and powers. We call them 
brands, platforms, parties, offices, and follower sets. We're right to wrestle against them, the robots, while remembering that we're to avoid wrestling against flesh and blood, the human beings looking down at us through the window slash eye sockets of the robots. Yeah. So I, I just, I see myself and I kind of see myself in the cockpit or in the head of this giant mech suit. You are, you know? and you're in more and than one. That, more that's than where it gets really complicated. It is a complicated thing that you're talking about. So what is the robot specifically in your metaphor or, or what can it be? Absolutely. I will begin to unpack it by naming some of my robots. One of my robots is the United States government because I, we are the United States government. Hmm. Another robot of mine is the state of Tennessee. Another robot of mine is Belmont University, where mm -hmm. I am employed. And that's kind of a big one in my life because it's how I have health care coverage and it is my primary source of cash flow. Yep. Another robot of mine, I suppose, would be my publishers because they're my books that I sell and that are mostly in print. Another robot would be my Twitter my social media account, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there is power. I don't have a blue check, but I do have a Twitter account, and I can do things from within my Twitter account. I have power within my Twitter account. I guess my family, my personality, my brand, but we have a lot. We move in and out of a bunch of robots, and we are all, well, Martin Luther King Jr. said that we're all in an inescapable network of mutuality. Mm. So let me say two robots are institutions. Apple is a robot. Google is a robot. Tesla is a robot. And this might be helpful. This is borrowing from William Stringfellow, who said mm. something similar about Marilyn Monroe. Mm. But instead of saying Marilyn Monroe, I'm going to say Taylor Swift. Sure. Taylor Swift is a human being with a heartbeat. Taylor Swift is flesh and blood. But then there's also perhaps we could call it the small nation or corporation that is Taylor Swift that employs, I'm guessing, maybe 200 people who yeah. run the brand that is Taylor Swift. Marilyn Monroe is dead, but Marilyn Monroe robot lives on. Michael Jackson, the flesh and blood, gone, but the estate, the brand, ooh, Martin Luther King Jr. is a kind of robot, respectfully, um, legacy, witness, all of that. So robots name the constellation of power that both depends upon human beings, but is something other than human. The church must be a robot. Well, the Vatican certainly is. The Roman Catholic Church is a robot. We find out that Pope Francis isn't running the robot because Pope Francis can say that the death penalty is sinful, but that doesn't mean that everybody who's Catholic agrees with him. So that kind of gets back to this association is currency thing. Mm -hmm. So the church, I try to make a breakdown between the church that is the visible body of Christ right. and the nonprofit organizations that successfully advertise themselves as churches. Yeah. 
you know, I'm fascinated by the possible connection here to what the French philosopher Jacques Ellul called la technique. Yes. And, and for him, it was as if technique rose above mere technology into exactly the kind of power and principality that you are describing in the robot. Yes. And one that really runs only on efficiency. Yeah. And, and then when you make efficiency your only end, the result is the kind of powerful bureaucracy that can dehumanize. Yes, absolutely. Say a little bit about what technological society has done. What makes these robots possible? Is this purely a modern phenomenon? Mm. Is this a technological phenomenon? Is this, is this a, a sort of a phenomenon that's just the result of the fall? Yeah. So to go back to Alol, I think Alol understands that we, we don't use tools. Our tools use us if yeah. we're not careful. And that we surrender our spirit, our anima, our own movement, our soul mm. to that which we say that we're using. And I hear people say, I'm using Shakespeare or I'm using this Bible verse. And I think it is my inner alone who always wants to say, no, you don't use, you don't use Star Wars, receive Star Wars. Uh, and I think yeah. C.S. Lewis said a lot of people use scripture. Not that many people receive scripture. Yeah. So when we reduce people hmm. to their use value, I have no use for, my goodness, what a thing to say about a fellow human being. You're useless. So I think of use when I think of technique, when I think of techne tool. I think that Twitter can be a wonderful tool. It is the tool upon which I inscribed my robots hmm. of exorcism theory. Indeed. But Twitter is also, can be a broken fire hydrant of sadness and rage. And when I try to imagine what Jacques might say, I think Jacques Vallon might say that technology amplifies our capacity for the demonic. And by mm. demonic, I mean a kind of energy. Um, so it yeah. can be hard. You can forget that there are human beings within the robots of other Twitter accounts. You can forget that the person you're opposing because you don't want them to win public office is a child of God, a fellow mm. human being. Mm. And um, so I think Alol famously said that we speak of a computer as a companion, but a computer is actually a vampire. <laughs> it's, and it's, wow. it's weird to put it that way. But when in our what we do with our screens is kind yeah. of what we do with our lives. We are never escaping relationship. And mm. my dissertation title was not the whole title, but the brief title was Insert Soul Here. And Insert huh. Soul Here, I've advised my students to make a little sticker and put it on their phone or their computer or their iPad so that they huh. recognize that whenever they tune in, even to read the Bible or something, <laughs> they are entering into possibly a compromising relationship because it's easy to forget it's easy to confuse static with signal, or it's easy to confuse noise with signal. 
Signal mm. is that which truly signifies. And noise can pose a signal. And that's what Philip K. Dick called disinformation. And we yeah. are awash mm. in disinformation. If you're like me, truly, yeah. you have known people who have died needlessly during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you perhaps know people we haven't even begun to take stock of this, but a refusal to exercise due caution during a pandemic has cost a lot of people their lives and have made many of us complicit in the preventable death of people that we've loved. I say all that to say that disinformation isn't a theoretical notion. It's a fact. Beck of, I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? That Beck. That Beck said in that song, don't believe everything that you breathe. Hmm. And I don't know if he have, he's ever read Walter Wink or Jacques Ellul, but don't believe everything that you breathe is a way of describing how we have to discern the spirits, that we emit what we admit. And I think people like Ellul understood that. And I'm always trying hmm. to bring him into my thinking about these matters. We'll be back with more from David Dark in just a moment. Hello, listeners. We do not want podcasting to be a one-sided conversation. So let's try something fun. In 2022, we're going to roll out some experimental segments for the show, and they involve your voice. First, we're inviting you to office hours. You have a burning question, observation, objection, or just want to know more about a topic we cover? Simply record your question with your smartphone and send us the clip by email at faith at yale.edu. This might surprise you, but a lot of professional podcasts, including ours, use smartphone audio for guests. We'll review your questions every week and include your voice on the show before we discuss either with that week's guest or Miroslav Wolf or a friend of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Second, in keeping with our purpose to help people envision and pursue lives worthy of our humanity, Maybe you have a way of articulating an answer to that question that's worth sharing. If so, send a two-minute clip of yourself tackling life's most enduring question. What does it mean to live a life worthy of our humanity? We'll give it a listen and then share with all the other listeners of the show. This is our way of calling out from the podcast cave in hopes of getting a response from outside the echo chamber. Happy recording, friends. Now, back to the show. Let's jump back into David reading from another part of his Twitter thread about robot soft exorcism. There are so many ways to challenge people and their problematic relationships with their robots, which have no life or power apart from the people inside them. There's calling your our representatives and specifying what you expect of their activity within their robots. There's also accepting responsibility for what we allow people to say aloud in our presence unchallenged. It doesn't have to be a blow-up. We can take it slow. It can be a soft exorcism. Talking people out of their robots takes time. People need the assurance that we're interested in them apart from the power they think they have or wield in their robots. One can't have a realization and feel shut down simultaneously. Soft exorcism looks like Ella Baker and Fred Rogers and every good teacher we've ever had. It's everywhere. Be the beloved community, the politics, the media, the broadcast, 
the witness you want to see in the world. One specifically non-robot mediated human interaction at a time. Stand where you must stand. Be human there, Daniel Berrigan tells us. This message was brought to you from within the robot that is my Twitter account and, among other things, a bulletin board, a cry for love, a promotional tool, and an influence campaign. So I want to ask you about exorcism and in particular, a soft exorcism as well. So, and I think we do need to talk about why it's an exorcism. Yes. And then we can hit the final term soft as part of that. Yes. Well, I, oh, this gets tricky. I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but here you go. I'll borrow from Walter Wink on this. When we say that a mob spirit descended on the protesters on January 6th, Mm. I'm not saying that there was an angel hovering above Washington, waiting for people to lose their SHIT and then possess them. Yeah. But there was a mob spirit. There was a spirit that took over. And I do believe that Jesus alludes to that kind of spirit when he prays, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Mm. They are all infinitely valuable bearers of God's image. And something that is not them has compelled them to torture and kill me mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So I do think of Paul's line in Ephesians as something of a elaboration on what Jesus was describing. No one has ever put their hand on my forehead and said, come out in the strong name of Jesus. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm restored. Yeah. But something a little like that did happen between me and Henry Nowen. Hmm. When I had a spirit of anger and defensiveness, and his way of responding to me, just by asking me questions, helped me give up a kind of angry ghost in that moment. And again, I'm not saying Rush Limbaugh was a spirit that was in me, but I, I had a thing going. And I, I, I truly believe in exorcism as a thing that occurs in the therapeutic setting. Yeah. In a therapeutic setting, I am relaxed. I'm able to kind of assign names to the voices in my head. And I'm able to say, that's not me. That's a feeling, but the feeling will pass. And I am more than that sad feeling. My wife, Sarah Mason, has a line in a song where she says, sitting with anger till it becomes sadness. Hmm. And she has said in other contexts, anger, mad is a form of sad. So I think an exorcism happens when I'm agitated and I sit and I kind of get at the information in my anger and I become less defensive. So exorcism is something that kind of occurs when I listen to Radiohead by myself. (laughs) I would say there's some movies I've seen that have been like an exorcism because they've helped me deal with some stuff. Which is to say that it kind of, I mean, you you said this, uh, that it takes people out of their robots is the kind of exorcism that you're talking about, right? You're, you're, You're trying to cast out the human from the robot. So it's almost this like reverse exorcism where where we're not casting out the demon we're casting out the human from the demon like we've inserted our soul into the demon of this robot and that's what needs to be exercised yes so thoreau says that we all crave reality and i think that's true so when i'm in the classroom and somebody's upset with me i believe they crave reality and i think i honor the buddha within them so if buddha just means the enlightened one when we do this, we've disagreed with each other, but mm. we're honoring 
the enlightened nature of the person we just had a difference with. I would say there's almost an exorcism going on. When two Buddhists have disagreed with each other and they do one of these before they part, they are kind of, it it seems to me, I've seen it happen. They are noting that there was difference, but they are surrendering whatever spirit of conflict existed between the two of them. In the same Hmm. way that we do when we pass the peace, peace of Christ be with you. Yeah. Carl Bart once said that if you don't have any solid difference with the person with whom you exchange the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ isn't there because the peace has to overcome some kind of difference. So I would say that a small exorcism occurs whenever we repent, whenever we apologize, whenever we back down. I have my opinion, and then I have my posture, and then I have my position. I don't have to confuse my opinion or my posture or my position for my identity. Wow. Yeah, that is very helpful. So if somebody says, I think you're wrong about gay marriage, I can say, so you think that I'm wrong in my position. Okay. Yeah. You want to talk about your position? So people can do that. They not only do they do it all the time, people manage to not confuse their positions with their identity more often than not. All around us, people are choosing nonviolence in their differences. And then every so often something gets hold of people, they confuse their position for their core self and violence ensues. So exorcism is a exotic word, but part of my robot soft exorcism idea is that we manage to not lose it with each other all the time. We overcome our own road rage all the time. This is an opportunity to say a little bit about what exactly is happening when we're in the robot. Like when we inhabit that position, what happens to our humanity that it must be exercised, that we must leave the robot? Because in in so many ways, as you articulated about your robots and look, everyone's got theirs, I've got mine. And, And in so many ways, they are, they're sort of, they've become necessitated. Mm -hmm. And yet... So I want to know what happens to our humanity there and how can we pull out of those robots consistently on a regular basis? How do we balance the tension there that we have to be a part of them in in some significant way, but we have to recognize ourselves simultaneously as not primarily or even, and especially not essentially. That's right identified with that role, that robot. That's a really great way of putting it. It's your essence, the question Mm -hmm. of our essence. Yeah. And essentially, I am a 51-year-old human being, but I'm also a child with memories. I rework over my own trauma wounds in my personality. I'm an Enneagram 9, and Mm -hmm. I am often avoidant of conflict, but I often feel peculiarly called upon to kind of jump in. So it, I think it happens when we confuse our status, our position for our core selves. And I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders was one human being talking to another human being. But then later on, a grievance overcame her and she decided to target a woman that she had just met because she took that boundary over the restaurant as a personal attack which is to put the mech suit back on. I think so. And utilize the power of that position, right? 
Yeah, so U2 has a weird song called Staring at the Sun off of their pop album. And there's a line in there where it's just armor-plated suits and ties. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. Armor-plated suits and ties. Yeah. So when we refer to somebody as just a suit, we might be saying they wear a tie and pretend to be civilized for a living. Mm. They are the human being next to the automatic pilot of the institution. Mm-hmm. And they are perhaps paid millions to pretend to be a human being representing the institution right. while the institution is destroying people. So armor-plated suits and ties, taking the tie off, that's a way of naming, yeah, letting go of your position. The Philippians passage, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, mm-hmm. but took the form of a servant, took the form of a merely human being. That kenosis line, self-emptying. Yeah, I love the idea of that form of kenosis too, and em- emptying oneself of the robot, you know, from the robot. A different kind of kenosis, of course, than what Christ is doing there. And that's right. In- that's right. But there's also to refuse titles. I, sometimes when we skip straight uh, to Christ, we skip over Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not saying we all do that whenever we say Christ. Sure. But if I say Christ enough that I'm not thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, that I'm not thinking of the red-letter words, Christ can become a kind of personal ghost friend who excuses me from my bad behavior and doesn't actually (laughs) demand anything of me in terms of the way that I treat people. So titles, institutions, to mistake myself for my title is the beginning of a whole lot of trouble. There's a line in Shakespeare where King Lear, who loses his crown, speaks of humanity as a bare-forked animal. (laughs) That's a human being. (laughs) So something about just being a fellow human being, and we know when when people are playing at power rather than being a fellow human. And yet divesting ourselves of whatever alleged power we have and walking through the world unarmed. One hears of white privilege. And I know that I am carrying white privilege into a grocery store, into the classroom, all of that, to really let go or try to let go of the power play is something of a life's work. Because for one thing, it means that I allow people of color to let me know how my word choice or the way I responded to a story was a reflection of whiteness, how to really let go of whiteness it yeah. is part of that as well. This is a paraphrase of the poet Claudia Rankin, but I think that whiteness is an investment in not knowing or pretending mm. to not know what's going on. Yeah. And whiteness is also an investment in belittling anyone who tries to tell me what's going on in gerrymandering or defunding public schools or, in the case of Tennessee, outlawing particular books of history in our public schools. So now I'm kind of rolling into the critical race theory thing. And, yeah, divesting myself, and I'm learning where I'm doing that. I'm figuring out where what I thought was a reasonable position was mostly my 
white privilege blinding me to what was going on. Well, here, Jacques Ellul said that propaganda is monologue and monologue mm. ends when dialogue begins. So sharing the microphone, yeah. listening yeah. to other people, and, and truly listening. Stringfellow says that listening is a rare happening because often when we're pretending to listen, we're actually just preparing our next statement. And um, right. part of letting yeah. go of that, part of entering into that exorcism, that robot that is whiteness, is mm. waiting. When somebody tells me something I don't want to hear, maybe sitting with it for a day or two, rather than yeah. confusing a reaction for a response. So there's wow. all kinds yeah. of ways to slow the tape, and, I, and we're called to do that. I think this is like a really good segue into talking about the softness of the exorcism. But let's think specifically about through the lens of resistance. And, and I have to say that when I read your thread and when I've thought about robot soft exorcism, I think of like Tank Man on Tiananmen Square, yes. right? I think of the freedom riders that are, you know, standing in front of hoses yes. and, and at countertops yes. and so many other instances of nonviolent resistance. So talk about why softness of the exorcism. Well, I think we've become what we converse with. I think we can only heal what we know ourselves to be a part of. So beloved community, I will say the words beloved community, which are often shared among veterans of, I want to say the civil rights movement, but I also want to say, instead of civil rights movement, I want to say the nonviolent movement of America. When John Lewis died, the Reverend James Lawson made, specifically said, they call it the civil rights movement. But Congressman Lewis and myself have always called it the nonviolent movement of America. Uh. And Lawson also says that with the Black Lives Matter movement, that the Black Lives Matter movement is accomplishing something that the civil rights movement did not. So the nonviolent movement of America continues. Mm. And with these words, beloved community, we're describing both an idea, a moral vision, and a kind of biological fact, if we believe that we are all kin, that all human beings are sisters and brothers. Mm -hmm. So... That's part of the softness. I believe Claudia Rankin once said that you can't experience a moral realization and feel shut down simultaneously. Then the softness, is it because of the humanity that's there? Yes. The robot's the problem. Yes. The exorcism is the solution. But how the solution takes place in the softness of it is the nonviolence and it's the recognition of humanity in the other, right? It's the invitation even in the style. That's it. You use this phrase later in the Twitter thread. Mm -hmm. Later in the thread, you say one human exchange at a time. And it's the, I mean, even that description of it, I mean, you can have uh, hardened exchanges, of course, but you might say that part of the humanity of the exchange, part of the humanness is itself the softness. It's an invitation and it's mutuality, it's relationality. Yes, my fellow creature. I will yeah. say I haven't been arrested, but I have been near the front 
in which people are being arrested at Black Lives Matter type protests. And one of my mantras that I'm telling myself is I wrestle not against flesh and blood. So I might get pushed. I might get yelled at. But I wrestle not against flesh and blood is a kind of mantra or lyric that I have to tell myself in order to keep my best self alive when someone is trying to provoke me. And I think that is the softness. If I ever think that if I could just kill someone or if I ever think that if fill in the blank died, we would have peace. That's where I surrender to the demonic. I mean, that's where I have lost my way because I have persuaded myself that the face of evil is one other particular human being. And I don't believe there is a face of evil. I, if I have a person that I have enmity toward, part of my exercise is to imagine them eating Doritos by themselves or looking in the mirror (laughs) and being disappointed in what they see because we are all (laughs) ungrown children. And the softness is making sure, even if I get maligned one human exchange at a time, I was as human as I could have been. And then we see what happens. And I do think this can, oh, this doesn't center myself in an unhelpful way. But I do think take up your cross and follow me refers to the burden that is placed on you for trying to follow Jesus into every interaction Mm. or follow the holy or follow Buddha or follow whoever you're, you're trying to follow in your attempt to be a morally serious person. So my cross is not the fact that I need a cup of coffee every morning or that I have a weakness for sweets. Those are not my crosses to bear. My cross to bear is what gets put on me as I seek righteousness. And there's something too that, as you say, is a style, is a softness, is a non-defensiveness. And I think that's how the work gets done. One of the other connections that I have to robot soft exorcism is rage against the machine. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very interesting how consistent that really is even in a nonviolent sense that, you know, as you say in the thread, non-robot mediated human interaction, which suggests that, you know, we do need to rage against that empty robot in a sense, right? Fight that power and principality. And the place of rage in this, I think, is a really important thing to be paying attention to and not confusing rage against the machine with rage against the human drivers of the machine. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the tank man is very useful because Uh it is literally a guy in a tank, which is a kind of robot, maybe one or two people, and a human being standing there kind of going, really? Like, are you really going to do this? Yeah. And and that is the turning the other cheek tactic. And it's like a very literal expression of Berrigan's stand where you must stand. That's right. That's right. Like, are you ready to pull the switch on me? Are you Mm -hmm. really going to fire? In my own activist work, I'm usually the older white guy there 
who is going to mm-hmm. be able to be a eyewitness testimony to what actually happened when mm-hmm. younger people of color are pushed around and the story gets out that they were mm-hmm. provoking law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I'm there to say, nope, <laughs> they were not provoking law enforcement. They were yeah. standing there. They were nonviolent. In that moment, especially during a pandemic, I have watched law enforcement kind of get up close to nonviolent activists. And the nonviolent activists are wearing surgical masks Mm. and the law enforcement won't. Mm. And so then it becomes, who told you? Was it the governor or was it the mayor who said that you didn't need to wear a mask when standing that close to somebody you have sworn to serve? And then it gets really real because Mm. folks with on the side of the barricade that are not armed the citizens say to the troopers put down your badge and join us we'll do a go fund me to make sure you have what you need you're humiliating yourself right now and you know you're going to have to face your own children one day and explain so that's where it's really it's come out of the robot and Mm. and often law enforcement are responding to the peer pressure of their own colleagues. But often you can tell by the looks on their faces that they really don't want to be doing this. And mm. uh, But they have to have health insurance. Perhaps the robots we will always have with us, but the invitation to be merely human, we're all awash in these dilemmas every day in our own way. In a way of closing... You know, we're in Advent season, awaiting and expecting what might be something like a prototypical robot soft exorcism in the birth of Christ, that 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 a vulnerable infant in the backwaters of of the Roman Empire and a refugee family, brown skin, and yet there is this kind of message. There's a there's it's a message to humanity to come out of the robot and be fully human. Yes, the undocumented Christ child, we might say. Becoming, yeah, the stones the builder rejects, the builders reject become the chief cornerstone. I think of the Bruce Coburn line, redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. We get to bring that kind of expectancy to the way we read the news, the way we categorize people the way we feel threatened Mm. and we're really going against the news cycle if we insist on the meaning of human history being in this manger scene to be alive to it to be citizens of a better future than what is being settled for by our robot overlords david i can't thank you enough for joining me i've just enjoyed this conversation so much Thank you. Thank you. I'm into it. I'd love to do it again any old time. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured author and cultural critic David Dark. Production assistance by Martin Chan, Nathan Jowers, Natalie Lamb, and Logan Ludman. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. 
New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we'd love your feedback. Ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts are particularly helpful, but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu. We read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show, bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear. And if you're a regular listener, it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week. So I'll ask you to step up and join us. Help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.